0: Welcome to this really exciting first event of um, the very acclaimed Africa talk series and we're really excited to have such an amazing topic and lineup of speakers. So I'm Dr. Sara Salem, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of so- Sociology here at the LSE and I am going to chair this event. So I'll talk a little bit about what the event is about, um, introduce our speakers and then we can get started. So. This event is essentially an attempt to think about decolonization and African knowledge systems. Across Africa, governments, universities and activist groups are making spirited um, efforts to decolonize the Eurocentric systems of knowledge that continue to pervade the continent. But what does this mean and how can it be achieved? more than transforming how knowledge is taught and produced in the academy, the decolonization of African knowledge systems can be seen as a tool in a wider toolbox aimed at challenging the ways in which colonialism continues to affect present day African society. So today the speakers will examine some of the progress that's been made in decolonizing Africa's knowledge systems, discussing present ideas and how they're connected to past legacies and also the complicated role that continues to be played by global North-South knowledge exchange programs. So we'll begin um, with the three distinguished speakers um, speaking about various subjects. We'll then have some time for um, a debate or conversation between the speakers before we open it up to um, a Q&A. So our first speaker is uh, Professor Akosua Adomako Ampofo, who is a professor of African and Gender Studies at the University of Ghana and president of the African Studies Association of Africa. Formerly, she was the founding director of the University of Ghana Center for Gender Studies and Advocacy, and later director (coughs) of the Institute of African Studies. Her research, teaching, and advocacy, addresses African knowledge systems, higher education, identity politics, gender-based violence, women's work, masculinities, and gender representations in popular culture. Her work has been very widely recognized. For instance, in 2010, she was awarded the Feminist Activism Award by Sociologists for Women and Society, and in 2015, she was the African Studies Association, African Studies Review Distinguished Lecturer. Um, She's also an editor of Chief of Contemporary Journal of African Studies, co-editor of the Critical Investigations into Humanitarianism in Africa blog, and the African Studies Review, and she's also a fellow of the Ghana Academy of Arts and Science. Our second speaker is Dr. Wagoro. who is a Kenyan academic social critic, researcher, translator, and writer. As a public intellectual, she has an interest in the development of African languages and literatures, as well as being consistently involved with the promotion of literary translation internationally, regularly speaking, and writing on the subject. She has translated the works of various (laughs) award-winning authors and her own writing encompasses poetry, essays, short stories, fiction and non-fiction. Her short story, Heaven and Earth, has been taught on the Kenyan curriculum and she has also been a very active campaigner for human rights in Africa and Europe and has co-edited an important volume with Kelly Cote and Suki Ali called Global Feminist Politics, Identities in a Changing World. And finally, our third speaker is Dr. Romina Estrati, who is based at SOAS, uh, just down the road. She's a critical international development thinker and practitioner. Born in Eastern Europe, she's worked for the past eight years to destabilize Western European epistemic dominance in African development theory and practice. Since 2016, she's been involved with the Decolonizing SOAS Working Group. And more recently, she acted as a research funding officer in the SOAS Research and Enterprise Office that has looked at how structures, norms, and practices in higher education impede efforts to decolonize knowledge production. She's currently a senior teaching fellow um, for the School of History, Religion, and Philosophy and a research associate at the Department of Development Studies at SOAS. And she also provides strategic advice on matters of decolonization to the Research and Enterprise Directorate. So a really distinguished panel. Um, and I think we can begin with our first speaker. Thank you. Uh,
1: good evening, everyone. And evening. thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Let me do some brief acknowledgements before I start, and I'd like to... Where's Innocent? I'd like to... Where's Innocent? He's outside. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, you can tell him I said this, that really appreciate um, the assistance that he has put into organizing this with, I'm sure, a number of other people whose names um, we don't know. And I also want to recognize his predecessor, Sarah Maya uh, Willoughby, as well as Yovanka, who... You know, Started work on this, I think, over a year ago. And I know that when we started the conversations, uh, Professor Tandika Mkandaweri was supposed to be our um, moderator. And I do want us to, he's, he's unable to be here. And I would like to publicly recognize the amount of work that he has done to put um, Africa as a, a knowledge site and space, as well as his activism for the continent. Um, on the table. And thanks very much to Sarah, who's, you know, for moderating um, us tonight. I feel very uh, gratified that my sister Wangu is here. So if you guys intimidate me, I know that <laughs> she
2: will uh,
1: make sure that I am fine. Um, and to Romina, who I've just met this evening, um, who's also part of our panel. Uh, the Akanse Obakunsa Unso. Onyami inikata. Literally, a single hand cannot cover God's eyes or face. In other words, to praise and acknowledge Him, her. I spent over 30 years working for pay in the academy with lessons learned from so many colleagues, mentors, students, family, and among them, especially my feminist sisters. And it's impossible to name them, but I would like to stand here and acknowledge that um, I stand on the shoulders and by the sides of many stalwart individuals who have um, you know contributed to all that I am and, and share. And so today, uh, what I share resonates and um, comes from a lot of those sharings. This is a journey of people. Uh, Sarah, with your permission, I would also seek um, everyone's indulgence and ask for us to rise and observe a moment's respectful silence in a minute. For some of our colleagues in this decolonization journey, who have gone to join the ancestors this year, uh, last year, sorry. And a thank you to Wangui for reminding us to always do this. So, this is by no means an exhaustive list. Paya Sadesami, Maya Angelou, Wainaina Binyavanga, Nipsey Hustle, Theodora, Wonja Michael, Caroline Mata, Pabnanke Atukwe Okai, Tony Morrison, Molora Ogundipe Leslie. Over the last few decades, there has been an almost an explosion of debates about Africa in both the popular and the academic press, as well as social media, with different protagonists engaging in reclaiming, surfacing, interpreting, sometimes rewriting African stories. For example, The Economist declared Africa the hopeless continent in 2000, I'm sure many of you are aware, and by 2011 had discovered that there was hope and Africa was rising. In these debates, the perspectives of Af- Africans frequently collide with the perspectives of non-Africans in terms of what is privileged in the stories about Africa and the so-called black condition. The decolonizing project, while not new, has received new impetus and popularity in recent years, thanks in no small part to youth uh, 4 movements. It is decolonization remix season, and that... Um, terminology, I acknowledge my daughter Yao Paribia for calling it that. <laughs> Indeed, when I mentioned the title of this workshop to a certain other young lady, she rolled her eyes anti-decolonized, she said, for in the last few years I've attended several gatherings where I spoke to the issue, many of them invited. So popular has this old agenda become that some white <clears throat> scholars have been accused of appropriating this new wave for their own professional development. And yet, a remix, a sample, a cover can, can breathe new energy. Who would not love the Beyoncé, at Sharon and Gary Clark Jr.'s 2016 Grammy performance tribute of Stevie Wonder's Master Blaster, a.k.a. Jamming. So for me, I'd like to do two things today. One, insert race very concretely into the decolonized Project and suggest a very intentional to-do and undo list to all of us. All of us involved in education have an ethical obligation to do this. As Kwame Nkrumah said, at the formal opening of the Institute of African Studies in 1963, in a speech that has come to be known as the African genius, and I quote him, not only uh, education is, we must regard education as the gateway to the enchanted cities of the mind, and not only as a means to personal economic security and social privilege. Indeed, education consists not only in the sum of what a man today he would probably say a man or woman, knows, or the skill with which he can put this to his own advantage. In my view, a man's education must also be measured in terms of the soundness of his judgment of people and things and in his power to understand and appreciate the needs of his fellow men and to be of service to them. The educated man should be so sensitive to the conditions around him that he makes it his chief endeavor to improve those conditions for the good of all, So for those of us privileged enough to sit here today who know what we should do to to make higher education uh, recognized and included, um, we really need to put our hands to the wheel. Not only so that Africans can feel included and earn our due rewards for our knowledge, but also so that the rest of humanity can benefit in that spirit of corporate human wellness. Ubuntu, as they say, I'm well if you're well. So decolonizing is about race and white privilege and the white savior complex. Wangui and I have been discussing the treatment of Meghan Markle. I don't think I need to say more. Mm-hmm. Marius Kota in a piece entitled Race and Politics of Knowledge Production in African Studies, published on the online site Black Perspectives in April 2019, reflects as follows on Jean Allman, who's the former African Studies Association president's important 2018 lecture, titled Herzkowitz Must Fall, to which she invited myself and a few others to a post-lecture panel entitled Ruptures. Kota muses, I began to think, and I quote, I began to think about who is able to make the experiences of black scholars in African studies legible. Would the audience have received a black African scholar with the same enthusiasm if they were to give the exact same lecture? Or would they have been met with uncomfortable silences, accused of, quote, playing the race card? and dismissed as angry and bitter. More plainly, I wondered if the talk was received so positively because Alman is white. The answers to these questions remain unclear." These ideas have been humorously, or is it sardonically, captured in the series of videos, quote, if black people said. For example, it must have been really hard to grow up in the suburbs. No police activity, no gun violence. Or, this is me volunteering at an orphanage in Europe. It was so inspiring.
2: <laughs>
1: or, your name is so easy to spell. Side by, in 2015, I was a Fulbright scholar at a small sectarian college in Irvine, California. At the very first faculty meeting, an older white man asked me if I had a nickname, as my name was too difficult to pronounce. <laughs> Many people today suffer from chronic, long-term conditions that cannot be cured, but that can be controlled or managed. Take, for example, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD for short. It's a condition that includes obstruction of the small airways and emphysema. This chronic condition can be controlled with breathing treatments and inhalers. However, when the person with COPD develops a bad cold, flu, or pneumonia, she or he now has an acute lung condition which makes the COPD worse and causes new disease symptoms of the acute on top of the chronic The patient's symptoms worsen to the point where hospitalization is needed. My father is 92. He has been an asthmatic all my life. And as he aged, he would fall into the acute phase and throw the rest of the family into a panic more and more often. Once he was cured of the acute condition or it had run its course, then the chronic condition would eventually go back to its baseline and, and he would resume his own version of a normal way of life. But that normal was really only a resumption of life under the banner of chronic. So for my father, it meant going back to his inhaler, his oxygen machine, and his medication. Race, patriarchy, epistemic power, class, the capitalist economy, and the media are deeply implicated in resistances to our decolonizing project. And the academy has often treated matters of race or capitalist ruptures as acute say when there are student movements around decolonizing the Academy such as the student for movements or in questions of hiring minorities to fix a situation where there are too few as soon as these matters are presumably attended to usually in piecemeal and unsustainable ways there's a return to chronic silences erasures or misrepresentations racing the Academy in other words seeing and responding to the harmful operations of race is central to the decolonization project Only this way can we ultimately ultimately make the higher education space, this world, safer and more more productive for all of us. I repeat, I am well if you are well in the spirit of Ubuntu. In the rest of this talk, I'll illustrate some of these conditions as I present my to-do and undo list. So that's my list. And if we don't have time, at least you know what I was attempting to say. (laughs) We need to remember that in Europe and America... Some other places. The aim of African studies was not, as Nkrumah exhorted us, to study African peoples on the continent and in the diaspora in African-centered ways, but rather to understand the natives so as to better other and so justify plundering and colonizing them. This was true of all colonies, but I center on Africa. So we want to surface and pay tribute to our forebears and contemporary scholars and activists it is important to acknowledge the origins before the remixes. From the the former slave uprisings, uprisings, through the civil rights and independence struggles, to the heart-searing music coming from places like the U.S. and South Africa. For example, Miran Makiba in 1963, having testified to the United Nations about the apartheid regime, her citizenship and right of return were revoked. Slave Resistance Tales Carlota Luchimi, slave on a Cuban plantation where she planned and orchestrated an uprising that included many women somewhere around late 1843. She was the catalyst for several others across Cuba. Fortunately today, there are many online archives where these histories are available for study and the silences can no more be acceptable. Since the 1800s, black scholars globally have consistently called attention to the racial politics that underpins the marginalization of African and black knowledge, aka calling for decolonization and demonstrating how it can be done. Academics such as Du Bois, as well as clergy and community leaders, paid attention to issues that concern the continent and linked the ways in which, in today's parlance, black lives mattered across space. In other words, specifically linking the experience of people of African descent globally. This attention to linking experiences of continental Africans and blacks in the US was at least partially responsible for Kwame Nkrumah's studying at an HBCU, Lincoln University, historically black uh, college or university. Du Bois trained among other things as a sociologist, and so since my most recent training is in sociology, though I think that I am uh, maybe schizophrenic in my trainings, let me spend some time on Du Bois. He was a founding figure in American sociology and key to visual sociology. Yet his standing in sociology is barely given a mention except of course in black studies. The International Sociological Association's own list of books of the century is telling. In 2018, whereas Max Weber appears 14 times, (coughs) W.E.B. Du Bois appeared twice and Patricia Hill Collins is completely absent. (laughs) Of course, this is a reflection of the ISA's membership and whose work we engage with and I am a member of the ISA. While Du Bois is best known for his concept of double consciousness, many of his works predate the famed Chicago School of Sociology. The Atlanta School's Visual Sociology is where he very significantly embedded himself with a team of students and alumni from Atlanta University, now Clark University. He executed meticulous empirical research and used statistics from the U.S. Census and U.S. Bureau of Labor reports to create graphs and charts picturing the skyrocketing progress of black Americans post-emancipation. His work helps us to understand the active state-sponsored dismantling of black businesses and why we don't learn about this in the curriculum. His efforts to establish black studies can be recorded as early as 1941, in the whole of HBCUs that he and others um, worked with. In 1953, Howard was the first HBCU to establish a formal African Studies program and as far as I'm aware, it was also the first university to offer a Ph.D. in African studies and remains one of the few universities with a fully-fledged department, though its fortunes have suffered. Du Bois was viewed by many African scholars as the father of modern Pan-Africanism, and his work drew radical African-American intellectuals and artists to Ghana and other parts of Africa, Julian Mayfield um, Maya Angelou, who taught at Ghana. Bill Sutherland, who married the famous Ghanaian playwright and artist, Ifo Sutherland, later uh, settled in Tanzania. And, of course, Du Bois and Nkrumah started work on the um, uh, African encyclopedia. (coughs) And uh, Shelley Graham Du Bois, who accompanied him to Ghana, was instrumental in the establishment of the Ghana Broadcasting uh, Corporation. We can talk more recently about the Dar es Salaam School There are several um, Africanist congresses that were held across the world, um, including a very important one in Ghana in 1962. We can talk about um, congresses held in 1974 in Dar es Salaam, uh, Kampala in 1994, and and, and the list goes on. And yet we do not hear enough um, about these uh, works. Second point, um, black faculty and students. Where do they place in this um, project that we are trying to build in a new uh, form today? And we can have all these statistics and and share them. In the U.S. and Europe, African and black scholars are conspicuously underrepresented, not only in the field of African studies, but as we hopefully all know, in the academy more broadly. In Allman's aforementioned 2018 ASA lecture, she describes how ASA's first president, Melville and another white man in the leadership, deliberately undermined the work of black scholars. And she singles Heskovitz out, who once boasted that he was responsible for ensuring that Du Bois did not receive funding from the Carnegie Foundation to support his work on their Encyclopedia Africana. The hostile treatment of black scholars by the ASA's first leadership contributed to the rift between the fields of African studies and African-American studies that is still palpable today. I'm sure that we're all familiar with the, um, the statistics and I have a suspicion that uh, Romina is going to share some of those with us, so I'm going to skip that, but I have them here <laughs> if we need to return to it. Point three, epistemologies. We need to decolonize not only the curriculum, but the entire way of teaching. Who teaches, what is taught, which theories and concepts, what methodologies. Ask yourself, what images do the following concepts conjure and what do they mean in practice? Development, failed states, family, so-called nuclear and extended, arranged marriages, classical music, and what the heck is ethno-music, ethno-fashion, ethno-food, ethno-medicine? Really, what about underdeveloped, third world, global south? In my um, Introduction to African Studies undergraduate class, I sometimes ask my students, if we use different measures for development, let's say the number of school shootings in a particular year, how might a map of development look like? Because surely school shootings cannot be good for our development. Just a thought. In the article Under Western Eyes, Mohanty provides a critique of hegemonic Western feminisms, in particular she rebukes the universality of the theories of Western feminists and the categorization of third world women as a monolithic subject. Mohanty feels the assumption that third world women are a coherent group, ignoring the social factors is problematic. Secondly, the model of men as oppressors is not a universal model and she's against the oversimplification of the complexities across culture and gender into a binary division. While illustrating the lack of truth in the claims of Western feminists, Mohanty also shows the ethnocentrism of these theories. The attempts of first world women to explain third world uh, women as objects is viewed as a way of creating power hierarchies and cultural domination. The author calls this discursive colonialism. Methodologies, what questions do we ask? How do we ask them? Of whom do we ask them? What languages do we employ? Which questions don't get asked? How do we interpret and present our findings? And where, how do they impact policy and people's lives? In terms of curricula, including actual courses or included in courses is the question I'm asking. So for example, there are many courses that have an Africa Week or a Week on African Women rather than embedding this in the way that we teach. Kehendi Andrews, a professor of Black Studies in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University, in discussing the curriculum says, and I quote, For example, rather than teaching the Industrial Revolution as a triumph of British engineering alone, teachers should link it to the enslavement and colonization of Africa, which was essential to British history, unquote. When we do development economics, do we discuss the history of slavery and colonialism in building the so-called West? Do we even attempt a calculation of the trillions this contributed? Or say France's insidious <coughs> colonial pacts in Africa that have made economic independence impossible? And I have the data here and we can return to it in the conversations. It's, it's mind boggling that up until today, so many African countries still have to keep their reserves in France, billions of dollars. Research. A 2011 study found white researchers were nearly twice as likely to access funding from the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. A 2018 study that re-evaluated the applications after changing applicants' names found no apparent race or, for that matter, gender bias in the scoring. Because you might think, well, if we see your name and you look black, we're not going to give you money. Mm. But race was present in a more subtle form. The 2018 study by the NIH scientists in Open Access Journal Science Advances found that, quote, the tendency for black researchers to apply for funding in underappreciated topics of research is contributing to their low success rates at the NIH. In other words, the kinds of things that you study, which are very people-focused, these researchers find, that look at poor communities, that look <coughs> at minorities, are not likely to get funded, and we know who is interested in, mo- most interested in that kind of work. Who leads and directs international research partnerships, what direction they take, and the sources and conditions of funding are important questions that we might look to. Even attempts to address this can miss important recognition. In a generally useful article by Simon Baker and Andrew Thompson in which they pose genuinely important issues, such as moving away from the reliance on metrics, they also ask, and I quote, what is the best way to go about setting up these research links with universities in the developing world? in a way that maximizes the transfer of knowledge and experience to poorer nations without dictating terms of engagement and limiting capacity in the research bases in other countries. And I ask, capacity building really, is it about capacity building one way? Where's the recognition of capacity building the other way? Yolanda Buka, in her 2018 paper, Collaborative Research as Structural Violence, notes... But while there are ever more collaborative research projects connecting researchers and institutions from the so-called global south with the global north, western academic and research institutions often frame these initiatives through concepts of capacity building and the need to bring so-called local perspectives. And she lists a number of troubling aspects of this, including the the loss of uh, economic um, power because... The researchers that have the big names get the money and the greater funding, blah, blah, blah. We understand how this works. Six. sometimes we need to remove or relocate symbols, including their histories. We know about roads must fall. We know about student protests in the U.S. A couple of years ago, we moved for the removal of a statue of Gandhi from the University of Ghana campus. Seven, confront the immigration phobia, the inhuman borders and racial profiling whose borders are these anyway every day hundreds of African migrants are left to die in the Mediterranean Sea crossing from North Africa to Europe it's interesting that a region which produced the lion's share of refugees and migrants over the course of the 20th century would now have so little compassion for the people who are moving from other countries to theirs and for I was going to swear but let me not (laughs) since I'm on camera I should swear. I'm a grown woman, I have to... um... (laughs) Why do we name African migrants as economic migrants? I've never understood this. Doesn't everyone move for economic reasons? Who moves to worsen their state of life? (laughs) Eight, we need to have conversations, and I'm almost done, conversations and collaborations globally, including conferences, popular culture sites, and um, I'd like to, because I'm president of African Studies Association of Africa, say the good work um, that we are doing. And, and Wangui will bear me out, I know. And now she has to because I've called her name. <laughs> Our 2019 biennial conference was titled African and Africana Knowledges, Past Representations, Current Discourses, Future Communities. And this was a really important bridge both across the continent and with uh, global Africa. And I just want to read a couple of testimonies that came from the province. I quote, it was a real treat to be in sessions with so many young, dedicated researchers presenting exciting and innovative work. I felt the spirit of this conference remarkably different from the African Studies conferences I usually attend in Europe, ICAS, and ASA UK. I didn't say it all. <laughs> The feeling in Nairobi was that people do research for the betterment of their co- communities, not just for the betterment of their careers. Maybe this is more explicit in the feminist gender section of the research than elsewhere. I don't know, unquote. Somebody else said, oh, my God, it was so healing to be around so many African scholars and scholars of Africa. Another said, in fact, this is what distinguishes the African-based conferences, ASA." is a vision of the academy that is feminist and enabling of Pan-African women's career development. These communities are building something revolutionary, Reparations. I don't have time to talk about it, but considering the amount of money that was taken and that has been used to build, it needs to be counted. I know people are doing that. It needs to be tabled and it needs to be returned in one way or the other. And finally, I'd like to suggest that we keep a score sheet of the things that we want to do and track the kind of progress that we are making in that direction. And I have a final slide, and you have to see it, but the thing is not moving. What did I do? I'm just thanking you, but you have to see my slide. <laughs> is that which is They followed me. No, the other way. (laughs) I don't fear them. Okay, just to say thank you. (laughs)
2: I've only got 15 minutes, so I'm going to read, which I don't like to do. (laughs) I like to speak without reading, but I'd like to thank um, um, the organizers, Innocent, in particular for his very hard work, Sarah, and uh, my two um, co-speakers here. I'm also very delighted and honored to be here amongst friends. London is my home, as many of you know, and I can see you all, hello. Wave, <laughs> and I sort of feel very happy that you've actually made it. Um, and I've had an opportunity to work with some of the scholars in the room. My family is here: my niece and my son, and that's also very um, exciting. I'd like to acknowledge one particular person, and I know she's not expecting this, but Dawn Grant is in the room, and she was—we <laughs> went to university together, and she's the first black person that I saw. Um, in the UK, when I arrived to university in <laughs> 1980, and I'm saying this just to say I've observed um, scholarship on um, in the UK for the last 40 years. On the front row are my friends and brothers, and I will mention them later in my speech because it's very important that we have a community. The scholars here are the scholars that I can see in the front row from SOAS and other places, that there is a strong community in the UK that's concerned with knowledge and Africa. And I, I can't see you all. I can see a robtail, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll wear my glasses to look at you later. But, um, and I must acknowledge um, uh, Professor Akosia Adomako because it's because of her that I'm here. She wrote me in, and normally when she asks, I don't even hesitate to think about it. I just say yes, because as you can see, she's a very powerful, dynamic, important scholar, Um, and she started the African Studies Association of Africa. As you heard her bio, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. She's actually a very serious scholar. (laughs) do do read her work as well as all this organizational stuff that she does so it's not enough to just be a scholar you have to do all this other work if we worked as hard as all scholars in the world worked as hard as this not very tall person does (laughs) excuse me then I think all our scholarship globally would be very fine we're not fortunate enough to have that privilege of just being scholars in the ivory tower we have to do so much more but that, we don't mind, we don't complain. But just in case, I'm very talkative, so if I don't get to my 15 minutes, Sarah, mm-hmm. I would like to just summarize what I would really want, like to leave with the audience today, is that my title of my paper is The Ill of Things and the Position of, Positioning of Knowledge, Power, and Location. And by ill, pour ceux qui parlent français, c'est le "ill." qui laisse un garçon un bébé dans une salle et on doit prononcer toute la salle il mm. for those who um, don't mm. speak french <laughs> the il is the french uh, subject pronoun used if there's a baby boy in this room we would refer to everybody as il which is the masculine and of course il in english do i need to translate that <laughs> So my overriding remarks are that if knowledge does not serve humanity for the better in its contemporaneous time or in the future, then that knowledge, however much it is, is of no use to humanity. Knowledge, no matter where it is to be found, and it serves humanity, is of value to all human beings, as Akosia just said to us. In the African continent, text restorative justice through enabling African knowledge systems to reside side by side alongside with intermingling with or challenging other knowledge systems on equal (coughs) terms is important. The restoration of knowledges held captive, the reparative process of returning knowledge and of archiving contemporary knowledges in democratic forms including respecting the location of African knowledges and archives is very important at this moment. So I'm picking up the issue that Akosia raised on reparations, we didn't speak, but the question of reparations right at this minute is very important. Most of our knowledges and archives of Africa are actually held outside Africa. We've been researched for 400 years Every leaf, fauna, animal, creature has been documented somewhere and it resides outside Africa. So the restorative process is so much bigger than the cost of money, the labor that has gone into building outside Africa. But we're not the first continent or countries to be colonized. Rome colonized Europe and look at Britain today and the other empire countries, they came out of Roman and other colonization. So it's not impossible. But these gestures cannot be momentary gimmicks, occasionally returning one artifact at a the time. They have to be, it has to be a proper, considered matter. And you can't just ask black or African people, how do you do it? We have to do it collectively, together. Every time we've attended African Studies conferences, we've had the privilege of going to banquets, often held in grand um, cities in the United States of America, and sometimes we're taken to see archives held, unopened, thousands and thousands of things, stolen and looted, and the collections in private hands are immense, private objects which are so important to the memory and the rebuilding of those communities. So for me, these are some of the actions that can be taken quite apart from studying, building universities and so forth and so on, changing the curriculum, all the things that Acosia said. The global systems mean that it's very difficult now also to know which languages are which so borrowed and stolen is African um, knowledge and sold back as belonging to others that sometimes we do not know the provenance of some of this work. And IP, intellectual pro- pro- property, has not been acknowledged often. You'll know, many of you, that Picasso's work is somehow linked to Af- African art, etc., And the traces are there in music, in food, in everything. So we are so interlinked and 400 years can't just be undone by a 15-minute paper that I'm about to present today. (laughs) Secondly, knowledge is perceived as a neutral value in English at any rate with no purpose of its own or intent. And I'd like to argue that knowledge functions um, within the vessel in which it is poured. So it will take... Water, for example, will take the shape of whatever vessel that you put it in, and so the socio-cultural, economic, and political issues cannot be removed from the equation. So um, I remember one student from Kenya went to register at an institution that we shall not uh, name, but you can guess which one it was. She went to study African studies um, in this country, and she was asked to empty her mind of all that she thought she knew and that the people who were teaching were going to teach her something that she'd grown up with, somebody who speaks the language, somebody who had received knowledge from her ancestors, her grandmothers, her mother, and so forth and so on. She was asked to empty all that and submit herself, of course, to the scholarship. And I'm not asking any students here to come thinking that they're very clever because (laughs) institutions of learning, that's exactly what they're for. They're for humbling ourselves at all ages to learn something new come to lectures like this. And I'm very excited because I'm also learning a lot. So um, I want also to acknowledge as Professor Akosya said, these issues are very complex and I'd actually like to cite Kimberly Crenshaw who's coined this concept of intersectionality and allowed many of us who used to say black, disabled, um, sick, disabled, queer, blah, blah, you know, very long sentences. Your essay would be full of all these millions of words that half of it would be full of naming all these. She's given us a tool which enables us not to simplify a very complex matter, but to see that we are all interlinked. And I'll give you the example of DNA. You will not believe it, but some of you in this room may be related, apart from the ones that we know we're related to. Some of you may be biologically related, so say hi to your relatives. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, we'd like to, um, on this point of knowledge not being neutral, I'd like to recall this very famous Macaulay Minute, which I'm sure that you, you know about, and he said about the Indian education system, I feel that it's impossible for us, with our limited means, to attempt to educate the body of people. We must at present do our best to form a class who may be interpreters between us and, million, and the millions we govern. A class of persons, Indian in blood and color, but English in taste, in opinion, in morals and intellect. And this minute was very important in the colonizing of the whole of the British Empire because they produced a class of people who speak maybe like me, I don't know, but whose job was then to now you know, do the job of the colonizer. And this, I would argue, is is an ongoing project. And as far as we study, read, write, even come here to speak to you in European um, languages, then it is very difficult. I've got five minutes and I haven't even started. (laughs) (laughs) So here I was going to show you a picture of an Asian woman carrying a white man on her back. But please look it up. I didn't bring my slides, so I'm sorry, Innocent and Sarah, but um, I did want to show you the images, but <coughs> maybe we'll present it at another time. I'd also at this point um, like to talk third point on translation and to say that words mean a great deal and how we use them, as Acosia made that list. So I won't go over that list, but you heard third world development, etc. Um, And I've had the privilege of working as a translator, so it's very, very clear to me, as a translator, just how words mean very different things. You'll remember that President uh, Mandela was referred to as a terrorist, and many other people somewhere else in another environment saw him as as liberation, a person who was struggling for liberation. I'd also like to acknowledge Robtel Paley's work, which she wrote in African Arguments in 2016, which is instructive, and she asked the question, where are the Africans in African studies? And she's here in the room. Robtel, wave. There's Robtel. So if I'm acknowledge- calling these people in case you might want to talk to them because they, they might be hiding in the audience and you may not be aware. I'd also like to acknowledge June Pam Hutchison, (laughs) busy filming me here. She's um, an archivist and works in museum (coughs) studies and has um, done a lot of work in trying to recenter in this country, um, uh, the black presence and African presence here. I actually met her, and her double-barrel name, and we had a very funny conversation. I said, all these people keep inviting me, and they don't intend to pay me. They want me to be an informant, etc." But then I discovered she was an African woman. Haha
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Then, uh, of course, there's Akosia here who did some work, which I'll show off to you here. Um, African Feminist Politics of Knowledge. This was a book published in 2009. And I'm just saying this here to say that all this decolonizing remix, these kinds of moves post colonial, trans colonial, mother colonial, father colonial, whatever, post future colonial, whatever, sometimes are ruses to move us away from the conversations which we really should be having. The African nations are actually founded on a post, on a decolonizing path. So everything that they've been trying to do in those invented 1884 nation-states is decolonizing themselves. So everything that's done in those nations, everything across the disciplines, hospitals, education, everything, is done on a decolonizing path from the liberation struggles, from W.E.B. Dubois, from so many other people who fought against slavery, so, and even fought against occupation in Africa. These were anti-colonial struggles. So we mustn't look at this tiny moment, and we must analyze how this decolonial studies has come about now and why. Ugi Wathiongo in 1986 coined the concept of decolonizing. There's a book by him, and I would urge you to read it because it says all this very well. So I'm just saying, and I said time, is very important and you've seen that it's possible to set back the clock to a time of how we used to be and feminists have said that cultures can be constructed so if we go back to the good old days (coughs) people are being lynched in the present time we thought we would never, ever, ever in our lifetimes civil rights movements have happened to stop those kinds of things from happening black people are being shot and killed and jailed all over the world. Black people are escaping from Africa to go to Europe because of historical colonial pressures. So repetition, reputation and reading is what matters and clearly African voices are not being heard. We've been shouting and screaming hoarse over and over again yet the cycle keeps resetting itself to some time before and more utopian idealistic time. Oh la la. There's a film by that title of a perfect time when we could have tea and dress um, well and forget that there are servants in the basement below. So, um, have I said enough? Should I stop? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to give some data of publishing um, and of journals, in elite journals, the number of... um, Have you got data on this? Um, That The number of African people are 15% at most, and these are not only just published, but co-published work, co-published with Western scholars. Mm -hmm. And definitely all the work being done in all those thousands of universities in Africa, we're not getting to hear of them. And as Acosia said, most people, and particularly women scholars, try to do work which can transform their societies. Um, It's not education for education's sake. I escaped the ivory tower, and I'm very sad because I think I'd have made a very good teacher in this country, Um, but I escaped because I didn't want to be bubbling away against the racist um, context that I found. And I say this because when I first went to university, I won't say which, but it's publicly known. I was studying French, and um, we were reading Baudelaire, and we reached a point where there was a voluptuous, black, beautiful woman, and everybody turned to look at me. And I, I was so puzzled by this thing, because I was definitely not voluptuous or beautiful or sexy or whatever the thing was supposed to be. I'd like to end, if you don't mind, by reading from this lovely book, which is a decolonizing book, I would say. Of, um, at Margaret Busby's New Daughters of Africa, 25 years ago she published a book like this to try and bring African and women's voices to the fore. She's published another one, 25 years. Why are we needing 25 years to publish a book like this? Mm. Why? So I'm going to read you my own piece, not to show off, but I think it speaks to the subject that we are here today. And Myriad Press have offered the audience, and I know some of the writers are also in the room, so hello, um, who have offered a discount, I think, of 25%. And I think the code is available. We can share it later. But my piece is called Looking Down from Mount Kenya. Where do you hope to join my life? Flowing, not like a river, but but as torrents and currents of the tide, buffered by the multitudinous waters of change, going back and forth, lapping up the high and low banks, dazzling the plains with luminous floodings awash against the orange-red sky of our history. Where do you and I merge as minor or major con tributaries to the great sea, vast ocean of change, or where do we become engulfed by other tides of the past, of victory and of shame? And what futures unforetold then and now, what do we become? Droplets of vapor carried under the translucent sky to descend on unsuspecting blossom of springtide freedom as a dewdrop, inseparably defiant, or swallowed by the parched earth of our deserters, or hailstorm in the tropical storm. Here we stand, poised to emerge like Yakuyu and Mombi, in a world of numerous possibilities, drawing from history and awed by the great expanses of the earth, the sea and the sky that are our future and which hold promises of infinite, infinite, infinite possibilities. I'd like to end by thanking my brother Eugene, who's been a great, um, and I'm calling these people because they're in different disciplines, and they will, and Ra, sitting next to him, Ray, we've been doing these conversations for the last 40 years that I've been here, and still... And all these are very senior and major people in our society. i was going to talk about Bernadine Evaristo, who got half an award, the first ever black woman to win a Booker Prize. How ludicrous, half a prize. I end on this note. Thank you.
4: Listening to Wangu is like listening to music. I was, I was a bit lost um it's uh, i i I can't even speak now <laughs> so so engulfed in that um um, well, first and foremost, thank you for having me, uh, to Innocent, to Lawrence, um, to uh, Kojo, uh, which for my correspondent. I actually thought it was accidental that they invited me. They probably meant somebody else, but, but um, I, I appreciate that the efforts I'm making at Suas uh, are minor, but, uh, but they're, 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 they're visible and people appreciate them. Um, and, um, you know, I, I have a difficult task because somehow I have to represent SOAS and what we're doing at SOAS, but I also speak for my personal positionality. So it's really hard to <laughs> bridge the tensions because we don't uh, you know, ne- necessarily think as one. Uh, there are different people at SOAS who do different things and understand decolonization and the effort differently. So bear with me, I'm gonna do my best. <laughs> um, so my, uh, my, the title of my presentation today is Bridging the Epistemological Structural Normative Knowledge Production. How Eurocentrism is systemically <coughs> preserved and can be subverted. And I think already Akosu and Wangui touched on all of these. I'm trying to bring, it, bring everything together. I have an international relations background and I think more in abstract, so I always try to think systemically, or right, I think uh, about the theoretical framework. Uh, but before I go into the, um, the presentation, I just wanted to position myself. Uh, I'm also teaching at uh, in, uh, the intersection of religious, gender, and development <coughs> studies. Uh, positionality is very important. And uh, it's really, you know, whenever uh, somebody speaks, it's important to understand where they speak from, what kind of baggage they bring. Um, uh, Myself, I have been about seven years uh, in international development. I started uh, looking at agricultural development when I was uh, a student in the U.S. at a liberal arts college with a scholarship. I come from a low-income family family. Uh, which migrated to Greece uh, from Moldova when I was four years old. So then I was really uh, happy to get that scholarship and be able to get that holistic uh, knowledge that I was looking for. Uh, But soon I discovered that uh, the kind of research I was doing in, in agricultural development was Uh, very monolithic in its representations of agricultural development in sub-Saharan Africa, and obviously the emphasis was always on sub-Saharan Africa. So I started to question that, and I I was very fortunate to get a Thomas J. Watson fellowship, which is quite similar with Fulbright, but you just get uh, uh, some of money to to, uh, travel and and really open your horizons. So I could travel to four African countries when I was 21 years old for the first time in the continent, Uh, starting from Ghana, uh, going... To four, four regions up to Tamil i going to Ethiopia, uh, Tanzania, and Rwanda, and uh, you know I didn't know anything of, of of Africa, but I I you know I encounter such welcoming people and. I do consider Africa my home, to some, to some extent, if I'm allowed to. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, I, I really got uh, committed to deconstructing development studies and deconstructing theories, um, and, and finding methodologies that really are people-centered, that engage with how people understand their own realities, right? Um, and, and really engaging with languages. Uh, I came to do a PhD at SOAS. I completed the PhD in 2018. And, and then I became really in- involved in decolonizing SOAS as a PhD student. Uh, I was also co-editor of the SOAS Journal of, of Postgraduate Research, and we developed the Decolonization in Praxis volume, which was, you know, how we students understood what decolonizing our institution or epistemology could mean. Right. So um, uh, it was our own effort. And then. Uh, in 2016, SOAS established the Decolonizing SOAS Working Group with the support of the institution. And this is comprised by both (coughs) staff and students. Um, And I was part of that, I was, uh, you know, I think it's laudable that both students and staff could be in the same space and talk about everything very openly. Uh, Dr. Mira Sabaratnam, who's chairing the the group, has done a wonderful job with that. And and then I got involved again in open access issues and how to open knowledge. And uh, and finally, uh, I uh, worked for a year in the Research and Enterprise Office because I was really interested to understand how funding and material parameters and the structural parameters uh, were conducive to perpetuating the epistemological hegemony of Western Europe and North America. And this is what I want to to talk about today. Um, My experience in the Research Office, um, and with the support of the the Director of Research, uh, Dr. Alex Lewis, Uh, led to this um, event which we did just in September 2019, which attempted to apply a decolonial lens to research structures, practices, and norms. And, you know, as uh, Akoswe Wangui said, there is this renewed attention to decolonization. Uh, You know, SOAS has done a lot, again, motivated by the student, the focus movements, which reached SOAS, and uh, uh, there was extensive work being done on decolonizing the curriculum, on revisiting pedagogies, on becoming more inclusive, Uh, but much less attention on on the research development side, right, on the structures uh, and the norms that govern research and knowledge production. Um, And also, the funding landscape was changing, which I noticed immediately coming from international development. Uh, A lot of ODA-related funding, so uh, funding that is related to the official development assistance that the UK uh, provides to uh, low- and middle-income countries, increasingly encroaching into academia. Right. So instead of offering these funds bilaterally to countries, they, they provide the funds to universities to do uh, development-oriented research. And so we wanted to bring, uh, you know, have a conversation with the funders, with uh, research directors uh, to see <coughs> what, what role the research offices also have in research development practices. Uh, and we, we're very keen to have international speakers and have partners from our African and Asian uh, partner institutions to feed into the conversation. I was very. <coughs> A privilege to bring uh, three speakers from Namibia, Ethiopia, and Nepal, and I wish we could afford more speakers. Um, and um, sorry, and, and really, what what that event uh, made evident is that the epistemological questions that we're we're, we're um, uh, bringing up here are, to a large extent, dictated by the funding landscape and the publishing landscape, and you know the more structural and normative. Uh, framework that underpins knowledge production. So you really have to take a systemic approach to understand it but also to subvert it. Uh, But before I move uh, forward to look at that research and publishing uh, funding landscape, um, I want to uh, look at the definition of epistemological Eurocentrism because I think it's been used quite uh, broadly but very few of us define it and I think it's good to have working definitions. I'd like to echo Gloria Ladson-Billings and here, understanding that epistemology is ultimately linked to worldview. Right? All individuals, all of us, are epistemologically situated, are socialized in certain worldviews. And these worldviews inform how we think about the world, what theory we make, right? how we analyze an issue. Uh, and we need to be very reflexive about that. Uh, historically, the Western European colonizers projected their worldviews, interests, and understandings of humanity onto the other. Ngugi um, Watiango, referring to colonialism, uh, was mentioned before, wrote, the most important area of domination was the mental universe of the colonized, the control through culture of how people perceive themselves and their relationship to the world. In contemporary times, lack of recognition about this epistemological situatedness of historical paradigms and theories that we have been teaching, and Western universities have been teaching, uh, teaching for decades, but also lack of reflexivity about how our own worldviews inform our theory And and checking that, uh, checking that epistemological situatedness means that Western assumptions still are being perpetuated through paradigms and are being transposed to other uh, cultures and contexts, uh, 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 you know, silencing other knowledge systems and other understandings. So... I want to highlight th- three key epistemological issues that again have been highlighted, they have been raised by multiple African scholars and Asian scholars, uh, but I wanted to just highlight it because I will relate them to the structural <coughs> and, the, and the normative issues that I will raise. Uh, I think disconnect between theory and practice is a huge issue, especially in development studies. Disconnect between the academic and the research community. Dominance of English language, uh, as is, it was said, you know, language is intertwined with <coughs> in epistemology. Um, So so if you really want to decolonize epistemology, you need to engage with the language. You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to read between the lines, right? Language is not only discursive, but also non-discursive. And Eurocentric standards of knowledge validation, excellence and impact. The politics of citation. Who is being cited to validate your argument? Why is it that it's certain male white philosophers and not somebody else? Uh, Peer review norms and modes and forms of knowledge sharing. So these are the kind of epistemological issues that I think are very problematic, but they are being perpetuated by structural, normative, and regulatory uh, factors. The political and ideological agendas, the financial constraints, and all the other uh, sort of conditions in which higher education is embedded, right, especially here in the UK, we all know. And these are, I highlight some of these uh, frameworks, like the Industrial Strategy, the Research Act, the Haldane Principle Research Excellence Framework, Those who work in research offices, if anyone is in the room here aware, you know, institutions are really guided by these frameworks, and everything they do is because they have to be responsive to these frameworks. Uh, Another another parameter, research funding climate uh, and asymmetries, funding priorities, uh, and other laws that govern funding. And geographical distribution of publishing houses, the dominance of English language in publication, although Spanish is rising in some uh, areas and contexts, Uh, and also the norms of publication, how peer review is done, the bias in peer review, which I will return to, and so forth. So I want to focus on research funding, because this is what was key to the event that we organized, bringing the funders to us to have a conversation. Uh, If we look at the stats, R&D, research and development funding, is disproportionately (coughs) available in the world. Um, So GERD expenditures, uh, the highest percentages are seen in North America and Western Europe. In fact. 46.5% 46.5% of the total is in Western Europe and North America, and only 0.7% in sub-Saharan Africa, um, which, is, which is really surprising. And this is, if you want to see, this is the, uh, the figure uh, based on the UNESCO Institute for Statistics. It's not uh, a, you know, a, a comprehensive statistics, but it, it is striking to see. Um, the share of global R&D accounted by Asia, Latin America, and Africa increased since the 1970s, according to some studies, but when, without significant reduction of asymmetries in the world. Simply, the asymmetries have been displaced. Uh, the other thing that has happened is that research funding has become now more dictated by political agendas. So now you have ODA-related funding, right? So that's related to the UK's official development assistance, which means that uh, government rules and fiscal rules really dictate uh, these goals, but also government priorities. Whoever has, uh, has heard of the Global Challenges Research Fund and the Newton Fund, uh, those are all informed by the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. But these global challenges are defined by whom? Right? There is this discourse that a lot of NGOs were involved you know, internationally in defining this agenda, but as we will see, uh, they don't necessarily express the priorities of communities. And also, because uh, there is more, so because now funding is uh, related to government, it also becomes more intricate to apply for it. So you need support from research development st- uh, st- staff in, in offices and in institutions, which means that uh, it makes it harder for someone to apply as an individual. You have to apply through the institution. So this is what I call the institutionalization of research funding. Some institutions who have the capacity will be able to apply, those institutions who don't have the capacity will not be able to apply. Um, and this is a table I made when I was working as a research funding officer, um, looking at international-looking UK funding opportunities, uh, and, and what requirements they have in terms of the principal investigator uh, location requirements. Uh, most of them are granted to UK institutions, so you, it has to be a UK institution, or they bring international scholars to the UK. But uh, you know, even if you bring scholars it doesn't eschew the epistemological issues. They still have to operate within the mainstream epistemology. No matter how critical you are, there is this question of, you know, there is this inevitable degree of co that happens, and we all know it because we, we exist in this, in this environment. Um, and uh, you know, in parallel to that, there is, as I say, the, the pub- publications landscape. And again, the landscape is primarily, <coughs> overwhelmingly, uh, North American and Western European. About 75% of social science articles um, that were published in periodicals indexed in the Web of Sciences list were by North America and Western Europe. This is a study done by Martin Demeter, a colleague of mine. And only one to 10% uh, was published by uh, you know, countries in Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. So what are the implications of this landscape, of these asymmetries for African research and research uh, in Africa? Uh, what, th- these are points that emerged in our event, and our conversations with our international partners. because, As I said, there is tension between the global challenges, the priorities of the funders, and the priorities of local communities. Uh, because African universities are, are oftentimes structured around the Western model of assessment and are productivity-based and evaluation-based, and I'm, I'm quoting here, uh, Achille Mbembe, uh, and they also fo- uh, have capacity limitations, right? So that means that a lot of African researchers need to get into partnerships, collaborative research partnerships with UK-based researchers, but because they don't have the same capacity, sometimes they're disadvantaged, and often, oftentimes they're treated as data collectors as opposed to co-PIs, co-principal investigators as egalitarian partners. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll need three more minutes as <laughs> I'll wrap up. Um, local researchers are often incentivized to, um, sorry, because of the t- tight deadlines, you know researchers in the UK don't have the time to develop those relationships of trust and and they tend to favor the same institutions the prominent institutions in the few African or Asian countries they work with so the, the regional institutions or other agencies are not being in, involved in these research projects. Um, I'll pass this and I'll just make some practical suggestions looking forward because I think this is uh, this is part of the conversation uh, and these again emerge from the conversations we had at SOAS we, we have been very keen to lobby to funders, and uh, there is some leeway with the funders. They could accommodate more multivocal uh, voices in the development of these calls, right, involve African and Asian and other scholars in the conceptualization of the narrative and the call. The um, research development offices, such as the one I worked at, SOAS, could, could work with their counterparts in their, you know, in African and Asian institutions, or London-American institutions, and really share knowledge and get exposed to the difficulties and, and challenges of their, of, their, of their counterparts to become, uh, you know, more accommodating in the way they work. Because you know what we do in the research office. Oftentimes we have the funders' requirements, and then we just send these requirements to the partners in English, demanding that they that they respond right, that they respond in time. Um, So more collaborative, more egalitarian uh, processes that really try to award not getting more funding, not more publications or more citations, but actually reflexive practice, egalitarian practice, uh, learning languages. Research offices could award learning languages. You know, provide more funding to those who do make the effort to learn languages and communicate with their partners. There, there are simple ways to do it. Even funders could make certain arrangements where they reward more funding to those who do engage in language uh, instruction, for instance, or in transparent budgetary arrangements. So to finalize the talk, thank you, uh, uh, Sarah. I, I think. It's, so no matter how much we look at the practical, I think there are some more fundamental questions that that we need to revisit and discuss together. Maybe this is a good occasion. You know, conceptualizations of knowledge. How should knowledge be, how might we approach knowledge? And can the diverse conceptualizations of knowledge that exist in the world be accommodated in institutionalized knowledge production? Are universities the best place to produce knowledge? This is essentially what I'm asking. Uh, what should the standards of excellent research or, or, or a good researcher be? Uh, I think we need to move away of qualifications and publications and look at work ethic, look at reflexivity, look at respect, right? look at engagement, look at commitment. And finally, what is the role of language in research practice? Our, our, our academics are telling us you know, there are language barriers with their partners in Africa and Asia where we mostly work. Uh, But you know, how do we accommodate multilingualism in research development? What sort of initiatives can we take as funders, as academics, uh, from different perspectives to accommodate that? So I really think that we need something structural, transboundary, embodied, and practical. And again, I'll quote Mbembe Ashil, decolonizing an African university requires a geographical imagination that extends well beyond the confines of the nation state, right? Uh, and and I, I will go back to the decolonization in praxis, we wrote, uh, engaging with African uh, scholarship, of course. Uh, we really placed emphasis on praxis, which comes from the Greek word uh, praxi, ac- action and acting, embodiment. And we just, I, I really believe, you know, we need to be more humble and open in our approaches and our engagements with the world. And I think that if this ethos is embedded throughout in everything we do, it will reflect on the structure and the yeah. norms eventually. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for such amazing contributions. Um, you were very rich, and uh, I was especially struck by the really amazing um, ways in which you spoke about knowledge and the ways in which knowledge is generational, is collective, and so on. And so thank you very much. So we have about 20 minutes left. So I think it would be nice um, to open it up. It would be really good to have a conversation with both the audience and very excited. with both the audience and, uh, you could, and also to take the opportunity if you want to engage with each other's presentations. So if it's okay, I'll maybe open up the floor. We've spoken enough. Okay, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe we could take three questions at a time if you just want to say who you, who you are, and we'll take it from there. Yes, you are definitely first. <laughs> uh,
5: so yeah, my name is Idris uh, Ajia. I came all the way from... Oh, thank you. <laughs> I came from Southampton today. Um, I'm a postdoctoral fellow in um, uh, the Department of Physics there. And I want to thank all of you for your wonderful um, discussions. Uh, I have two questions prepared. For um, The first one would be for all of the panelists, and the second one is specifically for um, Professor Akosua and Dr. Wangui. Um, so... Um, my first question is this. I'll, I'll just give a very quick um, setup. up. So recently, I think um, it was last year, Heiko Maas, who's like the, I think he's the um, Minister of Foreign Affairs in Germany, he m- made a statement, with, which I found personally egregious, um, which was that, so, so he, he, he was like, the Holocaust is uh, uniquely um, uh, inhumane um, um, thing compared to the genocides that happened in Congo and I was I was annoyed. And there's also been other patterns um, of similar statements being made, like another um, person in Germany, pattern here, was like Africans should submit themselves to re, um, voluntary recolonization. He didn't use those specific words, but it was implied. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and recently of Emmanuel Macron um, summoning African leaders to come and explain why um, Africans have... A, um, visceral reaction to the presence of French occupation force in, in their countries and so, so my question is in, in, in the context of re, um, decolonization I feel like these guys reflect a very poor education in Europe as well so shouldn't that be extended um, uh, to the discourse of education in Europe um, my second question is, um, specifically related to, um, um, Professor Koswan and so, so, um, I don't know, there was, um, there was this movement called Africana Womanism. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, so the, the person who started it, Clenora Hudson-Wims, she presented, presented as a counterpoint to feminism, um, I don't know myself personally, I feel like there is, it's a ruse, but hey, I'm an expert on feminism, look at me. (laughs) Um, So I'm just wondering what your um, opinions uh, are on on those two points. Finally, I would just like to shout out to um, my boy, explorer, Ali Madi, who discovered a very famous river, uh, somewhere here, River Guru he calls it. And um, um, I think his um, discovery has inspired a lot of Africans, I would say, to come here and discover more things in these new, um, new found <laughs> places. Um, hopefully, so you'll be seeing um, more of us. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, We have a question
0: here.
3: Hi, I'm Doris Okenwa, um, LSE, Anthropology, just uh, finished my PhD. Thank you for a wonderful time. Um, It's interesting to hear what Africans are teaching Africans in the universities at home. I was imagining this conversation happening in University of Lagos, University of Nairobi, and what that would be because there is a decolonization that should happen in that curriculum. Mm -hmm. I'm Nigerian, my field work was in Kenya, and Kenyans were like, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. And I was like, (laughs) research on it, that's so white. (laughs) So it's not just a problem of funding and all the things that has been mentioned, but, I mean, Roptel knows my journey. It was a Herculean task. I almost gave up, not because I was um, being racialized, but the issues from, you know, dealing with Africans that couldn't understand what are you doing here, one studying anthropology and doing research. It's a white thing, kind of like an accepted thing that it's only white people that do certain things. So we're talking about imagination, a deficit in imagination. Um, the SOAS representative talked about at 21, tra- having the grant to, to travel to like four four countries. I also have a friend that learned Swahili in the US in secondary school. So there is actually that imagination that you can actually backpack somewhere, you can actually do certain things, you know. And we still learn some type of way in our African universities that also need to be decolonized. So it'll be interesting to know what you teach and how you manage this. Thank you. Thank you.
6: I, um, good, eve- uh, good night. Um, my-, <laughs> okay, my, my name is Denise Castro. I'm uh, Mozambican born, but uh, due to the um, conflict in Africa in 1975, I was forced to go to Portugal in exile. I think I, um, I heard of women like you, but I've never been inside of the same room <laughs> as it's such a close proximity, which thank you for that. I am a bachelor, a bachelorette in arts and I have um, international degrees, honors. I only graduated a few years ago. I'm a passionate African, pan-African taught or whatever. So uh, luckily I did my degree in a very non-prestigious uh, London South Bank and I had to fight the scholars there to try and read and do my dissertation about Africa. So I analyzed the last... Thirty years of the conflicts with Mozambique and um, the social and economic development. So I came up with some truth that I didn't know growing up. That you know, um, because exactly what you said, the information is hidden, is there, but is, is not until you dig really deep that you're going to find out what's really about. So after I find all of that, I decided no. Nope, I'm going to heal, I'm going to go back to Africa, and I'm going to re-Africanize myself if there's such a term. So I start writing to some universities in Africa, such as Ghana, Mozambique, and say, look, I don't have much money to go into these posh universities in London to try and find some sort of credibility to continue my research. So I'm offering myself to you to see, would you teach me what I lost in the last 40 years? Mm. And unfortunately, the response that I had was, well, what's your mom and dad's name? And uh, where the last time you came here? But as a mature student, unfortunately, I was left with two babies And between babies and classes and living on the verge of poverty, I couldn't beat the system Mm -hmm. and I was shocked that my fellow Africans wouldn't want my service for the good of human. So I even had the chance to speak to my president. He came to visit and he told us about this, you know, under the context of the exodus, please return and come and help us. So I said, sir, a ticket to Mozambique is 850 pounds. Me and the two kids, because I wouldn't have enough money for babysitting and I can't leave my kids out of the country because social service would fetch them. So how are you really suggesting that I do that? And when I offer me to be a research for free, in one they tell me, you just have a funny accent and, oh, you should just try and write a book and then call us back and maybe we could help you. So I would want to see if you, as your experience, would have some practical um, advice as a woman like me, that's trying. I infiltrate LSE just so I can get the discount on the next, (laughs) maybe a master's or PhD program, because they offer a good discount for stuff. But how do we get that barriers? Because when I'm asked, who's your family, in my dad's passport it says anonymous mother so it's very deep and the very wounds that are very open so yes nobody has an anonymous mother so how do i go back to africa and try and rub shoulders with the elite and i had my dissertation plagiarized and by the time i'm now <coughs> Finish nine to five. I'm beaten. So, what would be um, an, your advice for me to reach these institutions? And if my name is double-barred, like in paper, I look white. I don't feel white because you look at me when I enter <laughs> a room. Nobody's going to say, uh, "Miss Castro." They're just going to see a black woman with a funny accent and a lot of personality. So, and another, another um, practical um, advice is: I'm so struck by the amount of beauty and talent that we see with this new generation, the millenniums. I love them to beat They travel makers, but they're making the difference. <laughs> I have two of them in a house,
2: (laughs) how to deal with them.
6: (laughs) But I work in a very, the 32L is economics department. So I've seen these black ladies coming to me in a reception and they tell me, oh, my name is I said, ah, what's your name again? My name is N-B-O, nobody is named like that. So say your name. Tell me your name first, and let me figure out if I can type it or if I can spell it or not. So, are we going to heal these wounds, which are so ear, so recent? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Who would like to go first?
2: I'll be brave. Um, I think to the last question, it's very moving, your story, that I like to believe that Africa is everywhere. I've been here for the last 40 years in this country, and most of what I know about Africa I actually know from here because of the wonderful people around me. And I've been very privileged also to meet other people by looking for them and looking for every means that are possible for me to get to where I've been. I've funded myself to find myself wherever. If I was waiting for British funding, I would die never having received it. Partly because in my years, when e- we couldn't even say the word decolonial, people would go red in the face and that hate you forever, that think you've come to cause trouble. But now it's chic to be decolonial, so we are back old and gray, (laughs) old and gray and sexy, but we are, as Professor Akosya says, we are the quintessential Afro, what are they called? Those millennial nice things? (laughs) Afropolitans. Um. we are the precursors of that generation, so I think there's a lot of people here, there are lots of beautiful things in communities, there are beautiful bookshops, there's the lovely British Library, there are records at Kew Gardens, there's the public records newspaper library and there's lots of knowledge right here that you can access but also we've got the lovely internet also, which now is revolutionising conversations we can speak to people um, elsewhere The other thing that I've personally learned is to be humble to both this society and to the society that I imagine that I come from. And these tensions are global. The depth depth of colonialism is so deep. And when we say decolonizing the mind and the body, it's everybody. It's not just black people or white people. It's everybody because the colonial impact is the same. The curriculum is the same. I was talking to a colleague of mine who's doing her PhD on rape of of children. And um, I said to her, do you know this nursery rhyme? Georgie, porgy, pudding, and pie. What's the next line? (laughs) Then what happened when the boys came out to play? Have you ever thought and wondered what does that mean? What was the guy doing kissing girls and making them cry? Okay. And you learned this from a very early age. And sing it happily. And sing you. it the same. And so many other things. So it's everyone is impacted um, by these curricula and learning. And to learn them is very painful for everybody. When I learned to speak and write and translate in my mother tongue, I was 23, doing a modern European degree, and I must acknowledge my other colleague from 40 years ago, Dave, I can see you. Wave. These are my chums from university, I'm so excited. Um, And we are still going strong, we formed AfroSoc, and didn't we? Remember? Late nights? Yeah. Don't remember? (laughs) <laughs> so um, we're, we were there long ago but I think as I said these things they recycle themselves we're not the first from W. B. Du Bois etc you've seen recently President Obama and just within a year or two it's like that whole chapter never happened mm-hmm. so the nature of racism and these isms is that they know how to reinvent themselves so we have to find ways um, of, of, um, of reinventing themselves I wanted to speak briefly about the question of of the Holocaust in Congo in relation to this. That there is that repetition. I went to a market, a, a flea market, and I saw mine camp for the last for the first time in my life. I was so shocked next to some gollywogs being sold in Dulwich, Um and I was like, "Is this happening in my lifetime?" You know. So there's this repetition, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's, you know, grab the pussies, it's a bit more, you know, overt and brash and and so forth. So I think it's finding different ways to not dehumanize men, women, everybody, because we're impacted by these things. If somebody says, grab the pussy, it's not just women who are hurt. Men don't want women's pussies... Sorry to say the bad word, but they don't want women's pussies grabbed either. And the millennials, I'm sure, they're very special. They don't definitely want that. <laughs> um, and then the African woman, I will leave that safely to Professor Akos But just to say that there are many, um, that knowledge is contested, as I said earlier in my conversation, whether it's capitalism, race, whatever. All these... Knowledges are contested, so I think I'll stop there.
1: Okay. All right, let me um, go next to the first speaker. As you were talking, I was just rolling my eyes, and um, you know, what, what can you say? What, what you know, what I quoted in Kroma about what education is about or should be about, and um, as one, oh, I think um, you said, education is not only something that happens in the classroom. So, yeah, if, uh, if you are not a proper human being, then, and, and I think in many of our languages, there are sayings to that effect. If you cannot be a proper human being, then you are not properly educated. So I agree with you. And just thinking of the damage that, um, you know, France has done on the continent. Let me, let me read a couple of things. So uh, I guess you all know that the, Francophone countries. Secuturi decides that he's going to abandon France. 3,000 French men left the country taking all their possessions and destroying all that could not be moved. Schools, nurseries, buildings of the public administration were destroyed. Cars, books, medicines, instruments of the research institute. The tractors were crushed and sabotaged. Horses, cows on farms were killed and stored foods were burned and poisoned. And, and France did this to tell other Francophone countries that watch out. If you want to go alone, as Secretary did, trouble is waiting for you. Okay. And we can go on and on with the list. Let me just talk about um, Togo. Um, the, the o- Olympio decided that he was also going to leave the French uh, monetary system that had been established. On January 13, 1963, three days after he began printing new bills for Togo, A squad of soldiers supported by France seized and killed him as the first elected president of of Togo, and he was executed by an ex-French legionnaire. And this story is repeated across uh, francophone, quote-unquote, African countries. Same happened um, to um, uh, Burkina Faso, then Upper Volta, uh, Jean Bédal Bocassa came in, and you find these so-called French legionaries uh, complicit in all of these uh, sites. And as, as I said, the amount of money, 85% of these countries' reserves are in the Central Bank of France. There is zero accountability about what is happening to that money, the profits that are made. I mean, and then this man... I have to has, you have to yeah. You have to borrow. You have to borrow your own money. And this man has the temerity to talk about what Africans should and should not do. I mean, to me, we're talking about good and bad human beings, and I agree entirely that if you go into the spirit of Ubuntu, and I know Ubuntu like decolonialism is like yeah, okay, Ubuntu again. But seriously, if we go into the, the spirit of Ubuntu. It's like you are pro- you, you cannot progress without other people. If you think that your progress is just in your little French box, you know, look at the world that we are living in today. And the Akans have a saying that, "Emressa, times change." If you are a wealthy person, um, you know, in in some so- societies, you give somebody a gift, and you're looking at the person, you are richer than them, and it's like, oh no, you really shouldn't have. And, and, and the Akans are like, you do not refuse a gift from anybody. And I'm sure this can be multiplied. Because by refusing the gift from the so-called poorer person, you are suggesting that you will always be on top. You don't need anything from anybody. And we know that we all need things from other people. You're walking down the street, you, you, somebody comes to attack you. You're hoping that that poor person whose gift you didn't take may come to your rescue. So, you know, this kind of thinking... Uh,
2: <laughs> don't
1: I don't want to swear. We, we,
2: we,
1: in Ghana, you can you can say tafrache and then you can say anything after that because you've you've cleansed what you're about to say. So excuse me, that is a lot of BS. And um, yes, we should look at the educational system and, and, and teaching and learning is about making us human beings who can. I mean, we are we are destroying the earth. You know, we're not thinking of tomorrow. Look at what we do to the environment. We don't care two hoots. It's about get 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 and then where's tomorrow? Okay, and but but I do want to say I'll come to the womanism thing last if I may. Um there were questions about decolonizing the academy um in in African c- countries that, that I, th- I think that Wangui has alluded to this uh, very well. That we're, we're, we have a European educational system; the African universities were destroyed. Okay, mm-hmm. so we recognise that what we have, you know, yeah, it has some usefulness, but it's not—it's not our system; it's, it's borrowed. And so, in, in Ghana, for example, when Kwame Nkrumah set up the Institute of African Studies, he was trying to be a pra- pragmatic. He was trying to be pragmatic and say that, you know, this university, it's it's a university in Africa, it's not necessarily an African university. We're gonna have an institute of African studies. You guys try and center African knowledge and work with other departments. And I have to be honest, at the University of Ghana, it has been a consistent um, battle to have people, some people in the university acknowledge that not everybody is doing African-centered research. And the fact that you are doing research on Africa, among African people, doesn't mean that your are, you are, um, Africa is centered in that. And um, we often get pushback It's like, "Why well, you guys think you are the only ones doing African studies? We also." And we're like, "Not necessarily. You are not necessarily um, having an African-centered approach." And so, you know, it's it's not a perfect system. I mean, when when the University of Ghana. Was you know (coughs) became ours, um, I should say. And and Cromer said that we we wouldn't have anthropology, and until today we don't have an anthropology department because he felt that anthropology was this voyeuristic. Let's go and study the natives and see what we can do. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have trained anthropologists, you know, but it it speaks to um, you know the agenda at that time. And it's a constant, it's a constant challenge to do this. But at least we have sites and spaces um, within the academy. And and I would echo the earlier point uh, made that learning, and that goes to the, quest- the question that you asked, that learning doesn't take place only in the academy. I think that um, Wangui has given us all um, a very rich list of places where knowledge can be found. So, I mean, we can have a conversation as- afterwards. I would ask, you know sometimes you need a master's or a PhD for practical purposes because there are some jobs if you don't have those letters after your name they're not going to employ you. But there are other people who look at individuals and say this is the person that I want and you have to ask yourself what you you know what you need that um, education for and whether it can be had without having a formal relationship with an institution. A, a lot of my learning has happened and continues to happen outside the academy. Many of the People who have mentored me, mainly um, African women, have not been in my institution. Though that learning has occurred outside the academy. They have been generous, uh, you know, in their um, teaching of me. Um, and and I'll, I'll just cite two, two places that I find very useful. One is Africa is a country. As I'm sure many of you here, you know, find this um, an important site. And you know, shout out to Sean Jacobs and, and company. Africa is a, a country has become so important now that people are looking to be called to publish on Africa as a country forget the fact that your university may not look at it in your as a publication but it's like this is a site where if my work finds its space in that site I'm I'm a respected african african uh, centered scholar um just to Privilege a blog that I'm a part of, Critical Investigations <laughs> for Humanitarianism in Africa. I think is a, a great place for, for learning. I have I'm I'm a co-editor on the blog, but I'm always amazed at how much I learn from both young and old, um, you know, who publish there. And as you said, the one we're wonderful internet. And so, um, last comment. You wanted to trouble us with that question. You, you, Wang, Wangui has deftly <laughs> dodged it, and I dare not. But um, I, I, I'm not the most uh, competent person to talk about language, even though I, talked, I did talk about concepts and so on. F- for me, a name doesn't, doesn't matter that much. Of course, sometimes the, the naming is critically important. But it's also about what that name is trying to convey. I I, I use that that term. I I call myself a feminist strategically because I think it it flags the fact that there are certain things that um, I will do, others that I will not tolerate, and it's about equality of men and women and and centering that in you know the 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 work that I do and um, how I relate with people and so on, you know that that we have a right to an equal spot on um, on the planet and to undo their injustices if that's what um womanism or womanist agenda seeks to do and they want to name it differently because of the baggage that comes with the <coughs> contestations between white feminists and black feminists and it's important for people to, to not use a term that they think is not their own mm-hmm. I think fair enough you know because people will, will you will use the term and you will explain why you are using it and I understand that when living in certain contexts, you have to be careful about the terminology that you use because it's a, a political project and I hope that um, you're nodding so I take it as an acceptable answer <laughs>
4: I know but, I, I mean, I think it was covered, just one point on the um, on the learning, uh, the educational system, the first speaker. Uh, your name was? Idris. Idris? Yeah. Um, so, it was a very, very good point. I mean, it saw us... Um, we are, we are having these conversations of how we can <coughs> work together with, you know, with house, high schools and uh, primary schools and secondary schools to revamp the curriculum. You know, how do we teach history to children here in, in the UK? But also myself, uh, I was raised in Greece, right? So Greek was set up as a modern state in, 18th, in the 1830s. And obviously, the model of education was influenced by the Western model largely. And my experience as a student up to high school level until I went to the US was all based on memorization uh, and it was uh, delivered to us to memorize. It wasn't about thinking critically about the world. Uh, it wasn't about assessing how that knowledge reflected on our lives and whether our experiences uh, confirm that knowledge or not, right? So you have to always compare, your, you have to uh, uh, juxtapose what is delivered to you to your life's experience. Is that accurate? If that doesn't express it, then it should be you know, deprecated not condemned. it's not right, it's not true. Um, so I really think, and we're having this conversation in the uh, conversations in the SOAS working group, um, uh, Dr. Elnor Nubigen, who is, studying his, uh, is teaching history at SOAS, uh, is actually very involved in this, uh, on how we can raise critical thinking, right? How can we teach differently? Um, and, um, and in my class, I now have the privilege to teach uh, Religions and development, my, my own course, uh, from a decolonial perspective, I actually teach the history of uh, colonialism uh, and, and juxtapose that to, to the emergence of development thought. Um, and the first thing I tell my students when I go into the class, I say, you know, my motto is Socratic, and Socrates said, do then either. The reason that this made him wise is because he admitted that one thing I know, that I know nothing. That's what either that what the, the you then either means. So you, you, you admit that you're a student of life. You come in with an attitude to be learning, not to be delivering knowledge as an expert. Because the world is so intricate, so you have to always be allowed to, allow yourself to learn, to explore. Listen to your students, listen to everyone. And I always tell them, uh, you know, a- another thing, we're not here to teach you what to think, but how to think critically. And the minute we stop doing that, tell us, check us. Because we're human, we might get, you know, distracted. We do forget. We are passionate about what we believe in. Sometimes we, you know, place emphasis on certain things. Um, so, so you know, you as students have to be engaged in that process, right? If if that if what is being delivered to you doesn't match your life's experiences, then you have to question it, be critical, not in an, in a hostile manner, but you know, it's it's all about that critical thinking. And not when I say critical, I don't mean judgmental, but critical as in reflexive. Thank
0: you. Thank you. If you could join me in thanking the panel.